The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Okay. So welcome to our first day for our Dharma practice series this year, which will be on the topic of the Eightfold Path. And um, <clears throat> today we'll kind of do a little overview of the Eightfold Path and then uh, uh, focus on the first factor, which is right view. And uh, probably many of you know that uh, the Eightfold Path is one of the uh, standard descriptions of the path that the Buddha offered. In fact, uh, what's said to be his first sermon, the first teaching after his enlightenment, um, he right up front uh, said that he was teaching a middle way. And that middle way was a way between, uh, between kind of self-denial or mortification or uh, overindulgence. And that middle way was defined by the Eightfold Path. The... Um, um, it's a uh, path that is meant to be comprehensive in many ways. Um, it covers uh, you know, many aspects of maybe important aspects of our life that we want to integrate into the practice or our practice into those areas of our lives. So it's, I think it's a very rich area of exploration and practice. The eight folds of the Eightfold Path are all practices. So... Um, uh, and then the qualities of mind that, ha- that arise as people practice. So um, that's an important thing to keep in mind that we're exploring practices uh, that can be done and practiced. We'll start each day with um, you know, some, uh, some meditation. And, and then the course of the day, we'll do a combination of things. We'll do some meditation, some guided meditation, a little bit of teaching that I'll give. Um, a chance for discussion and, uh, and uh, opportunities to do some exercises or uh, more focused uh, conversations <coughs> amongst yourselves, sometimes in small groups, sometimes in groups of two or three, with the idea that um, um, a personal explora- exploration of these topics is how they become much more alive and meaningful for you. Um, to just sit and listen to a Dharma talk maybe is nice. I hope it's nice. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, so I do it so much, give them so much. But, um, uh, you know, it, it's, in some ways they don't get integrated as fully into your life. That uh, can happen sometimes when we actually talk about it and, and uh, explore it on your own and hear yourself, hear what you have to say, hear someone else in a much more intimate place and get ideas. And, and in doing that kind of uh, um, a little bit more interactive, or quite a bit more interactive um, day than we usually have here when we have silent one-day sittings, we're also uh, cultivating some community. And a very important part of Buddhist spiritual life is to have that occur within the field of a community of people who you know and um, who know you and where there's, uh, you know, you can learn from each other, there's feedback from each other. And it was my uh, experience uh, that in many of the monasteries that I lived in, Buddhist monasteries, that a lot of the learning uh, that the people there uh, had received was not from the teacher of the monastery, but rather was from the... Um, well, teacher was important, but a lot of it came from uh, the uh, the residents of the monastery talking among themselves and uh, learning from each other and challenging each other and inspiring each other in their conversations. Um, and in, in a in a small way, you know, this uh, Dharma practice days are, are trying to replicate that more fuller experience that people have when they practice in a monastery because it's 
much more than just sitting quietly, meditating or listening to teachings. And there'll be a chance to talk during lunch, so there's even more opportunities to get to know each other. Um, and I'll say more about this. Oh, one of the things on Fridays, we haven't done it for a while, is we kind of adapt ourselves to the leaf blower. I just, I, I, I just heard it. And, um, and I, I think it doesn't work. I was going to do a guided meditation, but it doesn't often work so well. So we'll, see, we'll try. And it, depending on the leaf blower, it might be short silent or it might be a longer guided meditation. For those of you who are new here, the bathrooms are there in the back of the building. Uh, we'll take a break in about an hour or so so that you can use the bathroom. And there's tea to be had on the counter there. There's in the drawer, there's, there's tea. And there's, if, the, if the couples are not up on the counter, they're in the cupboard underneath. And there's, the drawers have tea. There's a refrigerator in the kitchen and microwave. If you have things you want to store in the refrigerator or lunch, you can put it there in the refrigerator. And then uh, during lunch, you can use the microwave. Two microwaves you can use. And... Um, So that's probably enough uh, for an introduction. Welcome. Um, so, um, let's tr- let's see if we what the leaf blowers do. If that door is open, yeah, let's shut the door in that window for now, and we can open it later. <coughs> it sounds a little far away today, but oh. Take a comfortable upright posture and gently close your eyes. And sometimes it's helpful and possible at the beginning of a sitting to intentionally set yourself at ease. So perhaps there's some way of settling into your body, relaxing your body, and putting it at ease as you're here. Softening the belly as you exhale, maybe softening the shoulders. And sometimes there can be some uneasy feelings in the body. And if that's the case, uh, perhaps you can at least be easy with those. Ease up on them. And taking a few moments to set your mind at ease. I think of the mind sometimes almost like a muscle. Sometimes I can feel at least the part of the mind that's in the head, some pressure and tension or energy there. As you exhale, perhaps softening the thinking muscle.
And if there's somehow that your mind is uneasy, it's okay. Be easy with that. Maybe easing up on it a little bit. And setting your heart at ease. Perhaps there's a way of letting the gravity or the weight of your heart relax and settle down into your body, deeper into your body as you exhale. Be at ease. And if somehow emotionally you're not at ease, it's okay. Be at ease, be easy with that, ease up. And finally, there's an expression in the, that the Buddha gave that sometimes is translated into English as to have it, to be assured or have assurance. But literally the, the Pali, the Buddhist word, literally means to breathe easy. So we'll take a few moments here and just let yourself breathe easy. See if you can have an easy breath. And if the breath is not easy, maybe you can be easy with that, one breath at a time.
As we continue this meditation time, I'd like to do a little guided meditation for you, kind of a guided visualization. Or if you don't visualize easily, that's fine. Perhaps just accompany, follow along with your thoughts, your imagination. And this uh, guided visualization is a journey. And the journey is as a pilgrimage to a sacred site. So you might consider the first the qualities or characteristics of some place that you've been that feels sacred or special in a great way, almost sacred way. A place in nature or some place. And this pilgrimage is one that involves walking. And there's a wide, straight road, flat road that stretches out in front of you upon which you can walk easily. And you begin by finding the road, the beginning of the road. And then imagine in this peaceful, wide open, easy road. You set foot on it and begin walking down, knowing the destination is a sacred site, perhaps knowing that even walking, the path itself, the walk itself is somehow part of the, being a pilgrimage is sacred, special. They say that it's important to walk to a sacred site so you're prepared and ready for what you're going to come to. And as you walk down this road, other people, perhaps friends, people you respect a lot, you find that they're also walking the road with you. And as it's a sacred pilgrimage and as it's people you respect that are with you, you find that you begin to be careful with how you are as you walk the pilgrimage. You find that being greedy or aversive to the others doesn't really make sense. And you find yourself having, starting to have some goodwill with these fellow travelers. Goodwill, kindness, perhaps even some compassion for those who have a little hard time with the walk. And so you find that you begin to speak to them in ways that are kind or supportive, that though, you know, your forms of unhelpful speech, wrong speech, angry speech or harsh speech or 
gossip, lying. It just doesn't feel right to be, have, to be part of this walk. And so you find that your speech becomes cleaner and more considered, more honest, kinder, more considered. And the speech of those who you're with is the same way. And you find that there's a very nice feeling in how people speak as they walk the path with you, the road. And you notice that the people walking with you seem also to be starting to become increasingly ethical. You notice that if some, somebody drops something, maybe something valuable, the, tra- the travelers, the pilgrims, will pick it up and return it to the person who dropped it. Not only do they speak ethically with each other, but there starts to be an ethical behavior. It improves and increases as people walk the path. feels like a safe group to walk in. And you feel that you've become a safer person to be a pilgrim. You feel less and less inclined to do the unethical actions that sometimes can just blurt out in an impulse. And as you keep walking down this road, with your companions coming by occasionally, The path is long enough that after a while you start noticing the quality of your mind as you walk. What goes on in your mind? And it feels like on this pilgrimage and all these hours and days of walking, the greater sensitivity you have to yourself, then it doesn't make sense anymore to have a mind that is caught up in greed or fear or aversion. You become increasingly sensitive to what's going on in your mind. And perhaps you notice because of the pilgrimage and the people you're with, you also notice that your mind becomes, the quality of it becomes nicer, beneficial. There's more kindness more generosity, more wisdom, more compassion. And that when you have a choice, when you see your mind, you see you have a choice, whether to continue with unhelpful states of mind or helpful ones, it becomes increasingly easy to let go of states of mind, which actually doesn't seem to fit very well what you're doing on the pilgrimage. And as you walk, the mind becomes lighter and easier, nicer to be with. You become, you become a better companion for yourself. And this in turn <clears throat> inspires you to be more present for the walk, for yourself, for those around you. You're at mindfulness. 
becomes heightened, your awareness of the present moment becomes more meaningful, more valuable, more something that you are inclined to come to as you walk the path. Becomes less relevant to spend a lot of time thinking about the past or the future. It's so satisfying just to be here walking, present. And as the days goes along, and you settle down more to the present, some of the speech and activities of the early days with the other travelers begins to quiet. And you, your mind, your effort becomes more focused, more concentrated on the task at hand. Just the walk, fully in the walk. Just walking. And as you begin, to, as you approach and see in the distance this sacred place you're going to, you recognize that there's qualities of you that are sacred, or qualities of the sacred place which you carry with you. A certain sense of presence, of peace, well-being, heightened sense of aliveness, sense of ethical purity. And it's quite meaningful to arrive at this place, not only because the place is special, but because of how you are as you you come, as you arrive. And so the Eightfold Path is a pilgrimage to a place that's sacred or special, very meaningful. And it's not a place that you go to. It's something that is inside of you. A place of peace, well-being, purity. A place that's clean, sacred. You You won't find it externally And the path to it is not external, but it's found within you. First we find the road, the path, the way, and then it's something we walk together with others. And, And your intentions, what you plan to do, are relevant for this inner pilgrimage. how you behave in relation to other people is relevant for this inner pilgrimage as well. How you speak, how you act. And then being able to care for your mind, your heart, so that you can shed some of the more unhelpful states of mind and get involved in the more helpful ones is relevant for this path to the sacred. And so is mindfulness, paying attention carefully. feels natural or appropriate. If the path is within, and the peace is within, to be interested in heightened capacity, to notice, to be present for what's here, within, without.
And because this path is so meaningful, perhaps, with time, you gather yourself together and make this focus, the stable, settled focus of your life, to be on this pilgrimage. The concentration you have, the subtleness you have about what you're doing becomes more important for you. And you notice that as you do this path, the sacred eightfold path, the path to peace, that you begin to change. And as you get a sense or intuition of where it's going, the possibility of profound peace, you slowly begin to recognize that these qualities are inside yourself. They're growing inside of you. And as you let them grow and as they grow over time, you get closer and closer to the sacred place that you're going to. Till finally, as you approach the sacred place, there becomes a day when the destination and you are no different. They merge, they become one. and you know peace. So, um, Western words, uh, concepts of sacred and pilgrimage. Um, There's no easy words in Pali, the ancient Buddhist language, to translate those words. But the word that maybe comes closest in the Buddhist language is uh, the word noble. In uh, in the ancient language, it is Arya. And I like the word noble as opposed to sacred, because noble um, more clearly connects to um, qualities of how people are. Uh, Tendency in Buddhism is not to look externally for what's sacred. 
uh, you know, the sacred places or, you know, sacred divine things someplace else. But uh, to find what's sacred or meaningful, most meaningful, in the qualities of the heart or the mind, how people are. And so there's, uh, we recognize then the nobility or a dignity or some uh, quality of, of a purity or value that comes from a person who has practiced, to come from a person who's cultivated and developed themselves um, or behaves or lives a certain kind of way. And so this is kind of what's most sacred, I think, in, in Buddhism. Is, um, and so the focus on Buddhism is, has a lot to do then on cultivating yourself, not looking externally for some place that's going to do it for you. There's not like sacred power spots in Buddhism. You go there and you soak it all up there are special places, you know, uh, pilgrimage sites like in India where the Buddha lived. But uh, I, the, the principle behind the Buddhist pilgrimages to those sites is to um, be in, to have the mirror turn, be them, have them be mirrors that have you has has you looking at yourself and help inspiring you to do the path uh, to walk the path. And so they have in Buddhism the idea of paths and. Um, the Buddha has a lot of teachings on the notion of a path, and he emphasized that what he taught was a gradual path. Um, some people would prefer to have uh, instant enlightenment, uh, and, uh, or to have some way of being point, pointing to what's ultimate in a quick way, and and be zapped or something. And uh, those things, something like that, can happen sometimes. But for the Buddha, the emphasis was the gradual path. And the gradual path, I think, is because it involves taking responsibility for your own cultivation, your own development and growth, uh, not having some kind of magical thinking, not relying on something outside of you to do the work, but rather to um, to do the work yourself. And I think it's a beautiful thing. It's a, quite a, 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 a wonderful, um, one of the most wonderful things, I think, in the world is uh, the, pers- the, the people who are inspired to purify their hearts and mind, to develop it and grow it to its potential, um, to find a kind of purity of heart and mind where uh, there's peace and ease in the heart. There's no, nothing. Uh, there's no, nothing blameworthy. There's nothing to be embarrassed about. There's nothing. It's just a clean, easy uh, way of being, and uh, it can be very inspiring to be around those kinds of people. Um, and it's a great gift to people in the world that there are such people. Because if you just have to read the newspapers, to uh, front page of the newspapers, to read um, the consequence of people who don't have that, and m- much of what you find in the news, you know, has to do with hate and greed and fear somehow operating the social world that we live in. And um, while it's important to address those things on their own terms, um, uh, if there aren't people who who model or show the possibility, a radical alternate opportunity, possibility of living in uh, without fear, living without greed, living without hate, um, then I think it's, you know, I don't know if there's any hope out there. And so in Buddhism, they put this emphasis, let's us be those people. Let's, let's be the people who discover how to live peacefully. Let's be the people to discover how to live without greed and hate. And there's two reasons for that. And different people, what motivates them is, um, you know, either one of those can be stronger than the other. Uh, one of them is uh, because um, the alternative hurts. 
there's suffering involved in being involved in attachment and clinging, greed, hate, and fear. And so there's a, some people are powerfully motivated not to live that way, and be, be burdened by it and struggle with it. And, and you know, some people's suffering is really immense. And other people um, are more motivated by the idea to make themselves that kind of person, not for their own sake, but rather to uh, make them, to, to develop themselves spiritually, so that they can be of service and help other people around them. Um, and then, and you know, that's kind of you know. The danger is if you try to help other people before you do your own work, that uh, you might actually end up causing more harm than good. And um, it, there's a lot of people. I mean, I kind of my, some of my reference points is points are kind of dated, but some of you are would you know are dated so. <laughs> In the in the 1960s, uh, you know, there was this, all these peace movement people, and a lot of people were, you know, championing peace. And a very common experience about the peace movement uh, for many people who went through it um, was uh, uh, these were not necessarily peaceful people involved, <laughs> and uh, and they weren't so conscious. And there was a lot of um, you know a lot of greed. There was a lot of fear, a lot of anger as part of it. Um, there was a lot of chauvinism, male chauvinism operating. All these peaceful men who kind of kept the women, you know, in this, you know, in a second-class place. And so, um, and so, a lot of people noticed this with time. And so, uh, they realized, you know, we got to we got to work on ourselves as well. And I think there was, there was a fair number of people in the '60s who came to Buddhism out of the peace movement because they saw something wasn't working about how they were and what they were doing. And, you know, the very thing they were trying to accomplish in the world, they hadn't done for themselves. So, the, so uh, this is one of the contributions I think Buddhism makes, is to offer a path of practice, a way of practicing and uh, teachings and certain values to support that, that is a, a, a tremendous help for ourselves and I, I believe a tremendous help for the world around us. So the simplest way of formulating this path is called the Eightfold Path. And there are other, Buddha gave other kind of descriptions of paths, sequences that a person can follow. But that's kind of like the core one, that's become kind of like the, the representative of it all. And um, it has advantages of, of uh, involving three different areas of our lives. Uh, it has to do with our behavior, our ethics. It has to do with cultivating our mind, cultivating our hearts and mind, paying attention to it and changing how we are, not just how we behave. And then it has to do with cultivating wisdom, a deeper understanding of this life of ours, so that um, the key aspect of Buddhist spirituality is the cultivation and growth of wisdom, operating from wisdom, which means uh, understanding what's going on here in a clear way. That's unusual. What? It, it'll, it's okay. Oh, it's, oh, it's, oh, I thought it was our phone. <laughs> oh, I thought it was our phone for that guy. I lo- it's really nice when people's cell phones go off because uh, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful reminder for all of us to uh, be more mindful. It's, it's, like a mindful. it's like a mindfulness bell. In some places they ring bells periodically. We don't need to because we have, we have the cell phones. And so, um, so um, where was I at? Wisdom, yeah, so wisdom. So part of the, the important part of wisdom is that um, uh, uh, initially when people come to the Buddhist path, there is a certain degree of faith that some of this makes sense. 
but uh, and so, you know, so you have enough confidence to walk the path to be engaged. Uh, but uh, uh, very clear in the teachings of the Buddha is that whatever faith or confidence you have in the path is supposed to become a verified faith. It's supposed to become faith that uh, wisdom faith, where you see and understand for yourself. And um, that's the, the function of faith in Buddhism is uh, not to kind of rest and just be taken care of by some wonderful thing, but, um, but to uh, help you, uh, motivate you to walk the path, to engage in this action of the path, so that you can become a person who sees the truth of this for yourself. So the Eightfold Path, the Noble Eightfold Path. So there's eight things. There's right view, there's right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. It begins with the right view. Right view um, has a wonderful word because the Pali word for view, ditti, has the same double meaning as the English word. It means both a kind of a kind of like a belief or a viewpoint that someone has, but it also means to see, to understand. So this idea that we're learning to see something for ourselves, not just hold on to a belief system, is important idea. And I think of it as an orientation or perspective that we bring. Um, the, the first step of the Eightfold Path is a perspective um, that is useful perspective to have in order to find the path, to find the orientation, to find the direction we're going to go. And that'll be kind of a topic for part of today. So um, I think um, this is a good juncture to take a break. And, um, and then we'll come back and, um, and kind of enter into this a little bit more uh, fully. So we can take about 15 minutes uh, if it, that's enough